Welcome to Journey to the Centre of Food and Adventure for all insatiably curious foodies everywhere. My name's Jay Taylor, I'll be your pilot for this adventure along with our navigator and foodie fact finder James Winter. Hello! And on today's show, it's all around us, it's vital for our lives every day but we take it for granted. That's right, it's beer. We are doing a special show all about our favourite drink, the magic juice that helps make the everyday just a bit more bearable, delving into its history, exploring lost recipes and exploding some myths about beer in the past with a special guest host. So without further ado, grab your tankard for a journey to the centre of beer. Hello James, how are you? Are you ready for a beer? Oh yeah, very much so. It's funny, as, as, a, as the nights draw in earlier, your third, well, my first thought is on my way up, oh, a lovely evening in the pub with a roaring oh. fire and some lovely different beers and ales to choose from with some mates and whatever, and some arguments or some laughing would just be, oh, it's just what you want. It's ale o'clock, isn't it? It's at the Absolutely. squeezy ale time. It's the time yeah. you go, oh, give us a warm ale, please. I know our yeah. Australian listeners will be just rolling their eyes at us, but a good warm ale is... How, how are you about bottled beer versus sort of, you know, by the by the pump? I mean, what do you think of I'm when you pump, go to a pub? I'm a pump man. I yeah. don't, don't like bottled... Especially, I don't. I like bottled beer at home, but I, uh, in a pub, I do not want something in a bottle. Yeah, I'm the same. I don't see the... Yeah, I do, yeah I don't, unless I'm in a fancy bar and, you know, you know the beer pumps are just there for show. I always... I just... It is. It's something... Yeah, it's it's, it's weird, isn't it? And some people go in and go, yeah, I'll have a bottle of something. You think... What's the point in that? I'd well, rather go for something I don't here. want as much as... I'd rather... If there's one I really want in the bottle and one I lesser want from the thing, I'll still go from the, the pump just because it mm. feels... Otherwise, like you said, what's the point? It's like going to a coffee shop and having instant coffee. Like, and there's, well, something, there's something kind of... Not historical or nostalgic. There's something about that sort of ancient process of pulling the beer pump and sort of extruding this frothing liquid into your pint glass. Plus, you know, let's be honest, just, you get more as well. I mean, yeah, you're well, get more and you get a pint. <laughs> there is a, just a sheer volumetric <laughs> decision to be made. But, you know, you, it's different. I mean, it's cloudy, I mean, it settles or it doesn't, depending on what you buy. All that stuff is, yeah, it's, it's you know, and you're never quite sure until you've got it in front of you what is what is that beer going to look and, and smell yeah. like? Yeah. Especially with the bloody beer menus in some of these places now. Christ, it's so good. Yeah, yeah it's, getting, it's getting elaborate. But we are, again, joined by a fabulous guest host who could be able to cast new light onto beer uh, because back today, he is one of Britain's most eminent food historians, writer and broadcaster, and an absolute expert when it comes to beer. He brews it. He drinks it. He's done disgraceful things while having had too much of it. And he knows more about its history than most of us will ever forget uh, or know in the first place. It's Mark Meltonville. Hello, Mark. Welcome back to Journey to the Centre of Food. Hello. Great to be here. And it's lovely to have you because when it comes to beer, you are the man. But do you, I want to take you way back originally. Do you remember your first experiences of beer, though? Was there a, a moment where you suddenly found you loved it? No. part of the problem this is i come from a french family which means as a child i can't remember not drinking (laughs) so uh, (laughs) i i I remember being sort of two three and four years old and giving brandy to settle the stomach before you went on a journey things like that so so (laughs) alcohol had no mystery in it when you got to student years it's something that was just always around you never too much um i think i think i discovered bitter and therefore good beers and ales as a student when myself and a few friends of course we all started off drinking the lagery beers like everybody else yeah. and then, then top. yeah well no no, no. 
I, 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 <laughs> wipe open your face and discuss that. All right, there are limits, Jeff. Yeah, not longer top. There, are, there are, no are limits. Yeah, I'll, I'll drink the bottom half, please. Um, <laughs> the, the, yeah, if, there's a there's a moment in every student's life that you realise that if you spend too much on food, you don't have any beer money, yeah. and that the fancy beers that you just are drinking because that's what everyone else seems to drink these light coloured lager things are dearer than the good traditional English bests. And so we started myself and several branches, but well, we'll have this dark beer because it's cheaper. That was the starting point. <laughs> and the miracle happened from there because you sipped it and went, ah, this has got a flavour. That's interesting. <laughs> I like this one or I don't like this one. And as you say, you travel around the pubs in London and you realise there were there were different breweries. You don't have to go back very far when beers didn't have names apart from what they are. We've completely changed. You're talking about a beer menu a minute ago, mm. James. Well, you only have to go back probably 25, 30, and the pub belonged to a brewery and they did bitter or mild lager, a dark beer, a light beer, a stout. And you didn't say, you know, can I have four pints of dog robber? Because those names <laughs> didn't exist. It was just, I'll have a pint of best, please. I'll have a stout. I'll have a, you know. um, and this is, this is what fascinates me. One of the things I look at is the spread of beer around Europe. Where, where does it all come from? Where does it go? And in the last few years, it has spread so far because we can transport it, we can preserve it, we can keep it perfect to come to you, that you need to know what all these different ones are. So you can't just have a can or a bottle of best anymore. It's got to be some name that reminds you that it's one of the 352 others you could try. Can I, can I ask you what might seem like a really dumb question? Mm. But what, I mean, how, how would you define beer? What is beer? You're oh, talking about best bitters, ales, and lager <laughs> beer, everything. We what have in the simplest that. form is Co beer? What, what right, is it? Come, come back with me a few thousand years. <laughs> right. The first thing we have to sort out is the terms that we use all have an original meaning. Now, I could drunk you back five, six thousand years to something that we don't recognise for beer. For, no, so a beer is one of the fermented alcohol drinks. If you take a grain, so that's a seed, and you allow that seed to germinate and stop it germinating, so you allow it to grow a bit, kill it with heat, you can just do that with an ordinary oven. Soak some grain, let it sprout, kill it with heat. So it's all very, very simplistic. That's what we call malting. So that's become a malted grain. Because it's germinated, the starches inside it have started to turn to sugar. So the plant can grow. We've stopped it growing. So we've now got a sweet seed. If you put that into hot water, that flavor and sugar comes out into the water. If you then add yeast to that mix, it becomes an alcoholic drink. Beer is one of those a fermented malt-based drink. Now we can go off in 900 directions to <laughs> define each one. And if you're talking about England and Northern Europe, the first one that everyone is confused about, they go, well, what's ale then? What's beer? What's ale? What's, what's, what, what are these two terms? And yeah. they originally have two separate meanings, but it does mix together very, very quickly. Now, so if we, if we jump back to... Uh, about a thousand years ago to our little Norman cousins and all these Saxons wandering around us all. They have a drink called alu, which is ale. And it is a fermented, usually barley-based drink. So it tastes a bit like beer. It's quite sweet. But it has no hops in it. 
and hops are what make our beer bitter. Now, we're very used now to actually reading the list of hops on the, uh, on the side of the can. There are so many different variants that have been developed, especially in America. All these different citrus flavors, uh, things that taste at the start of a drink, in the finish of the drink. So we've really gone to town on the hops. So originally, no hops, it's ale. It's bittered with other herbs. The favorite one in England is something called ale cost. You wouldn't Does recognize. it have to be bitter? Is that, a, is that an integral Seems part? Seems to be something we like as human beings. We like a hmm. slight bitter. It's bittersweet. We like sweet sour. So the malt gives it a sweetness. The herb gives it a slight bitterness to the back. We like that duality. We enjoy it. So for a long time, ale, no hops. And then this new drink starts to filter around Europe. It starts up in the Baltic and it moves its way down the Baltic. It's all to do with trade in a way I'm not going to explain because it's a very long, boring lecture. When is this? <laughs> when, when it, when, uh, roughly? Oh, it starts moving out around the 1200s, quite early on. It takes till the 1400s to get to Britain. It's quite a slow, slow march. The reason this hopped ale, that we now call beer, becomes mm. popular is not so much that you can, uh, the, the taste at first. It's hops, we now know, a preservative. So if you make a drink that's got hops in as your bitter flavour, it will travel better than anybody else's. So I make ale, Jay makes ale, but he puts hops in it. It can go to another city and make him money, and mine can't. And mine can last longer in the cave or cast. Yes, and so it travels, and of course, Jay's wonderful new drink with hops in turns up in my town, People start buying it because they rather like the flavour. Uh, I start making it, and I make more, and I spread it to this. So it just creeps across Europe. And it takes a while. It goes north into um, Scandinavia. It goes down uh, across into Poland. It goes all across the Low Countries. It, goes, it just spreads everywhere. We happen to be one of the later countries to start producing it. It takes till the 1400s, really, to get going here. But it seems to be like the lava revolution. Everywhere this drink where the hops are in it turns up everyone goes wow this is really nice now whether it's alcoholic at this stage oh yes it's always alcoholic Uh, you can't make a a beer so when you ferment anything including bread because that's yeast as well yeasts are very complicated little creatures which again we're not going to go into because they are very (laughs) very difficult to explain they're a little creature a little bit like a mushroom they run around uh, they increase exponentially in the right environment. So if you drop them into a big vat of nice, not too cold, not too hot liquid that's full of sugars, which is what your proto beer is, they get to work on make, eating it and making lots of little yeast babies. And what they do <laughs> is while they're procreating and having billions of little yeast babies who also want to eat, the fantastic byproduct is when yeast eats sugar, it poops out alcohol. <laughs> that's, that's it. That's it. It's very unromantic when you and, describe it, though. Right? <laughs> and carbon dioxide. Yeah, too, I'm, right? yeah, yeah. yeah and so carbon dioxide. Yeah. Fizzy alcohol. Yay! We're there. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we're very, very pleased with that. It takes until Louis, the, the likes of Louis Pasteur in the big 19th century for anyone to work out what on earth is happening. The science of beer, and we have a lot of arguments in beer history groups, because there is a lot of people who know an awful lot about the science of beer, but the science of beer is only really 150, 170 years old. Wow. Uh, and they understand So they had no idea what was happening. They but, just liked the result. They had theories. Um, 
and but they could are they control it in some way. Oh uh, yeah, how, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, um, people always ask me, you know, what what, what can you tell me about uh, an old an old beer, a Tudor beer, a medieval beer, or something? I say I can teach you the process, but I can't teach you the craft. And the craft in beer or in any food is the why that you like that one better than the other. Chefs all have knives, meat, and vegetables. Some end up on a food truck. Some end up cooking three-star dishes. It's the skill, the craft, the imagination, the understanding, the palate. And so and it's exactly front, the same I should point out that this is not theoretical on your behalf as well, because you're not a theoretical food historian. You have just finished building a brewery. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm the proud or not so proud owner of, of a huge debt. Uh, no, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I have um, a, a late medieval or Tudor brewery, which we've just been using for an experiment, which was for um, university in Dublin who wanted to look at the nutrition of, of beer. And that's opened up a whole new side to all this because um, their first question, and we're, we're only halfway through, so I can't give any answers at the moment, was people drank a lot of beer in the past. We know that the working man seems to drink six, seven, eight pints a day. What did this do to him? Yeah. Was it very strong? Do Well, human beings habitualize to alcohol, so it's not. it doesn't do an awful lot of good or harm in equal measure but how much of that is his food a pint of beer is full of calories it's full of carbohydrates protein in it um it's actually and i didn't know this until i met the uh, the the isotope people who are working on the analysis uh, when you cook water when you boil water you change the way the oxygen levels work in it so you're actually changing what happens to you with the drink you have so we're waiting and so you're going to have to watch this space probably for about eight months before we get into the research back. We're trying to find out how this beer fitted in, not just a pleasure. We know people drank beer because they like it. They drank yeah. strong beer for parties so that they couldn't remember yesterday. They, they did exactly what we do with it. But the mainstay of the table beers, as they call it, the beer that's on in a pot on the table while you're eating the food, that was part of your food group. It was as important as bread. It was important as cheese. It was important as the rest of it. Well, what's actually going on there? And that's that's one of the you stuff. drunk as well. If because James and I were talking about this before <laughs> we came on air, and this idea, and he was, uh, as we all know, James was saying, you know, they had it instead of water because the water was rubbish. I was like, how can they afford that? Is that is that true? <laughs> is that really what happened? Well, um, yeah, we have to put that myth. It's Mister Bedtime. Oh, right. Oh, here we go. <laughs> Brace yourselves. Right. Every recipe that I have for making beer going back the last five, six, seven, eight hundred years tells you to start with clean water. Every brewery that you visit nowadays will open with the sentence, come into my brewery, everyone drank beer in the past because the water was bad. And then in two seconds later, they say, we start with clean, fresh water. <laughs> <laughs> People drank beer because it was a food and they liked it, but they drank water as well and uh how far back can i go let's, let's but would the process of beer making purify the water in some way would it is there some heating would it kill any existing there is but and, and in the er in it? there is but in the early ma uh, ales no they don't actually boil it so it doesn't you need clean water so if 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 you live in a little village you've got a well you've got a clean stream there's an awful lot of, of writing about what water is worth drinking what to look out for if you've ever watched a group of men dig a well, you don't do that where the water's bad. Now, wells can go bad over the years when the water table changes, but people try very hard not to spend that much time and effort making something that's going to just poison them. A lot of our view is clouded, and I'm the same. We all learned about Victorian London, Victorian cities. They were filthy. 
they had expanded too far with a much too large workforce, which was incapable of being supported by the water and sanitation system of early London, early Manchester, early Liverpool. They were riddled with typhoid, cholera and so on, and that's true. But if you go back a bit further, there's not so many people not living on top of each other, trying their best to drink clean water where they can. They're putting water on the table. Uh, the manners writer Erasmus, in writing in the 16th century, always talks about water being the drink of youth. So you put a jug of water on the table for the children if they don't want the beer, but they might want it, it doesn't matter. I can take you right back to the 10th century, a book called Elfric's Colloquy. I can only just say that. It's a book to teach you Latin. It's a, it's a Latin primer. It's written in the form of a conversation between a master and his pupil. And one of the parts goes, master, what do you drink? And the master goes, ale if I have it, water if I have it not. So there's water drinking there all the way through. It's just we've sort of got this idea from the Victorian cities that everybody uh, could, couldn't drink the water. And it's, it's really difficult to make um, good beer with bad water. It just doesn't happen. So they're and drinking keeps... this much. They're drinking this much, regardless of that. And how do they do they get a tolerance to it? Yeah. Or do, okay, so it's like a sort of they're all functioning alcoholics. Everyone's perfectly capable. Uh, well, this is it. Mark introduced something <laughs> by saying the average working man. Yes. Right? So the question is, how much work was the average working uh, man getting done? Well, um, um, if, if, you, if, you, if, you, um, if you plough a field, walking behind a horse and a plough, if you plough an acre a day, which they reckon a man can do, you walk between ten and twelve miles. So you need quite a lot of energy to do that, pushing, pushing the power. So beer is part of your energy of that. When people talk about, oh, they drank a gallon a day, they must have all been rolling, rolling on the floor, screaming about how much they loved each other. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right, let's go back to, say, the 1970s. So what we're dropping back now, not even 50 years, end of the 70s. Working builders, plumbers, tradesmen. Work in the morning, go to the pub lunchtime, have a couple of pints, go back to work work, have a couple of pints with their friends on the way home, go back for tea, go out with their friends. Now, yeah. that's seven to eight easily. So the, the stop of this seven to eight pints a day is not hundreds of years ago. It's only in a generation. Is that and when the pubs started sort of saying no, no work, <laughs> when, you know, no what is it, no work clothes in here, please? Uh, I, I stop think, the, I stop think, what we used to call the dirty beers. When you'd done a dirty job, <laughs> you'd go for a couple of dirty beers before you went home and had a shower. Um, <laughs> there's some of that, but I think it's the changing face of the world and attitudes. The biggest one is going to be drinking and driving. Mm. And so as that becomes completely socially unacceptable, you don't have... And then that starts to feed into the workplace. I don't drink lunchtime because that's not really a good idea. Mm. And so I think the whole thing is a social change in that, in that beer and alcohol have very quickly become something that you do after hours, after work, even in the... Uh, again, if you talk to city business, especially TV and journalists, just talk to someone who's been in your game for a number of years, and they'll talk about you know the lunches and the pub sessions. Oh God, which, yes. Which oh, was I used seen, to go along. I used which, to watch the, my bosses when we were working in live TV, putting away three or four pints and the cameraman at lunchtime, and then going making live TV. I love to stand there as this rookie going, "Oh my God!" Yeah. So it's it's very focus? modern. Yeah. It's very very modern, and it, I think we're better for it that we we've managed to separate drink from our day to day life, and we also don't work as hard, so we don't need it as a food. And do you think people, I suppose, people used to have or, or work much more closer to home and also would have a pub much closer to mm -hmm. home, right? I mean, I, you know, I, I live a little bit outside London and I've got several pubs near me, but I don't work anywhere near where I live, really. And so if we go to the pub, 
we will try and go to the local one, but we might end up near where we work, which could be half an hour's drive away or an hour's commute yeah. or whatever. So yeah. you've got that travel issue that you were talking about, yeah. which now over the decades has become a real social concern. And maybe hmm. that's that's yeah, I think so. too. Yeah, I mean, people used to work within their own town. They would walk three or four miles to work quite happily. They didn't drive. They didn't have cars. Uh, didn't stop them operating some quite heavy machinery and having <laughs> miserable accidents. Uh, but I'm just thinking about the town I grew up in. Well, they just right. didn't notice, Mark. We just carried on. Um, got back home. Where's my ear? Oh, I don't know. I've just got to do a quick tot up in my head. The high street, the town I live in, because I know the history of it, it has now, if you go down the high street, one, two pubs left. One's an old coaching inn. One's another one that's been there for quite a long time. I know that at about 1900, there were 23 down that high street wow. so we have lost as we're losing them at the moment it's quite sad but they have been disappearing exponentially for the last hundred years or so and exactly what james was saying everyone had a pub within a few you know uh, a, a quarter mile of them a quarter mile of them they went in there uh, and, and, and they were the local and they i mean the public house was invented as a social experiment that was the whole point of it they they come out of the gin craze of the uh, first half of the 18th century when people are sat at home so whacked out on cheap gin that it's doing the country no good at all. So they have the idea of, well, if we allow some houses to go public, open themselves up with a license and serve beer, not gin, and you can sit down and chat and play cards and some dark, whatever, we can create a much better social environment for working people. And it, it'll, it stops them being non-functioning alcoholics, which is the other problem. <laughs> That's why they're called public houses. Yeah, they were literally houses. They were a house that you've got a license for, so that you have the public in. Did you know that one in four of us suffer from gut health issues like IBS, abdominal pain, gas and bloating? It's one of those things you think that there is no solution to and actually you just need to take a slog of tonic water and push through it. Well, actually, that's not true. Gut health is vital to our general health and wellness. And did you know that 70% of our immune system is in our gut? It helps fight viruses and other illnesses, which we know are flying around us at the moment. The gut's also linked to mental health, and it's linked to improving sports performance and our general well-being. The good news is, if you have any gut health issues or are just looking to optimise your gut health, our new sponsor, Sons, have a product for you. Sun's live bacterial supplement is clinically proven to treat digestive troubles and improve your gut health. What does it do? Well, it binds with the lining of your gut, strengthening the gut wall and making it better able to deal with what's thrown at it. It's backed up by over 50 clinical trials, making it one of the most studied bacterias in the world. Some of the stats from the trials are pretty impressive too. It was effective in helping 8 out of 10 men with their gut issues in just one study. So, what's your gut saying now? You can check this product out at suns.co.uk and the good news is you can use the code JOURNEY30, so J-O-U-R-N-E-Y 30, JOURNEY30, to get £30 off your first order and get your gut into healthy condition. So before this, were there sort of ale houses and things mm. before? Were there taverns or something where, where the um, beer was available? The terms that we use in English is ale house is very, very old. And an ale house is a house where usually the woman, it's a female trade brewing for a long, long time. Uh, the lady of the house makes beer and makes enough to have some to sell. To it. So you'd know which houses in your village were ale houses. And you'd go along either with a jug or you borrow one, and you it's just like an off-license. You'd purchase a big jug of ale, you and your mates, you'd finished your day's work, you'd come out in the fields, you'd pop to the ale house, bag on the back door, 
get the jug filled up and then go and sit down and drink it wherever outside if it's sunny in the church if it's cold um <laughs> church didn't That's like nice. this well yeah. church was about the only place you had in your village with seats <laughs> so you sat there church doesn't like this very much not because you're drinking in church it's because they're not making any money out of it so they start making um, <laughs> church ales for special occasions to sell at fates and so on so you and they're always better because they've got plenty of time to make the church so you've got ale houses you've then got inns which are for travelers so we're traveling london to oxford whatever and we need a night then we don't go into uh, an ale house we go into an inn and that's usually got some food and it's uh, um, has somewhere to stay so they're slightly different again and then the 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 weirdo in the whole thing is the tavern it's it's from the latin taverna so it's a bit high class and it's got a wine license so it's the fine dining restaurants oh i see go there right, for so better quality, you go there for better quality drink better quality food it's it's, it's a peg up so all the locals so when did when did wine appear then in the, uh, oh, in, in the on the menu I, well, I, I, I love I love oh. doing that. Oh yeah, we have a Vine Street in London. Come on, mm. what do you think we do here? <laughs> did it stay? I mean, we must have carried on. In, I mean, it must have come with the Romans, right? I mean, yeah. left with the Romans. Uh, no, it carries on for quite a while. In fact, um, uh, anyone who heard last week, we were talking about the Tudors. They're mentioning British wines. They don't like them very much. So, we were, produ- <laughs> so we were actually growing Produ- vines and producing a little bit. It's, out it's of dying right. out. Um, it's quite prevalent with the Normans. What it is is a, it's it's topical. It's climate change. Britain was a lot warmer a thousand years ago, and it slowly tails off over the first 500 years and has warmed up again over the last much quicker this time. But there's something called the mini ice age at the end of the 16th century. A lot of people have heard of the ice fairs in London when they Thames froze yeah, over. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it got markedly cold, and uh, that killed off the British wine industry. But it, for many years, it had been very poor. And at the risk of offending any foreign listeners, I'll be very careful. Um, the Tudors say, we don't like British mine very much. It's about as good as German. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to see things haven't changed very much over the oh, years. Yeah. <laughs> they, like, um, they like the wines of southern France and all oh, of the really? islands, uh, the, the Madeiras and places like that, the Sweetney Islands, the Canary Wines, they, they like all those. But no, there's... there's um, Wine, beer, and any of the other fermented drinks. Actually, if we if we did a program on how early can you go, um, they actually all link together at one point, and they become nearly one drink when you're using grapes and grain and honey and yeast all. all oh, really? Together. Just throwing it all in and just well, come- yeah, and they separate out later on. You get some very very early drinks. You're looking at the. Have work. you made one of those? Have you tried uh, that? No, I've been very lucky to uh, go out and uh, have a look at the work being done by some guys in America in uh, Penn. Uh, the Penn Museum in, in Philadelphia, where they're working on what they call ancient ale projects. And they're looking at recreating beers from six, seven, eight, nine thousand years ago, <laughs> based on wow. the residue that they find in little pottery pots. So can, if, you, if, you, if you imagine pulling up from an archaeological dig, here's a little pot. It went in the ground uncleaned, so it's still got whatever was in it. That powder can go through a mass spectrometer. That mass spectrometer will tell you the different ingredients and the amounts that's what i call a recipe uh, i don't a work thousand on year old wine a beer yeah. sorry that's incredible. uh or, but they're not they're not even they're they're great brain honey uh they're, they're a complete mix of things in there and they taste well actually what was weird i, I the first time i went to a tasting of one, one of the labs there i was the only european in the room so i've got all these american scientists 
and they were all trying to describe it as, well, it's a bit sweet, it's quite deep, it's quite dark. And I'm the one from Europe that piped up and says, it tastes Belgian. It tasted ah. like a Belgian dark ale. It had that sort of sticky Ooh, sweet. Lovely. Yeah, yeah, it was lovely. <laughs> now, you've, Mark, you've actually got your face on a beer. Yeah, well, <laughs> there's, right all, there's all of me. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm uh, yeah. There's a, unfortunately a picture of me on a on a beer can in America, uh, not as a lost child, but as <laughs> <laughs> that's a milk carton. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yes. Have you seen this brewer? Um, <laughs> What's it called? This beer? Uh, Plain straight ale. And what was that then? What was the? St- oh, Wait, did you, that was, was a, it a historic uh, ale. Yes, it was a colonial uh, brew from the very early 18th century, and we did it as a, a fundraising exercise for a museum. And so we, we used the period equipment and period recipes and spent a few weeks brewing up this this beer. And it was quite a it, That's why we called it Plain Straight Ale, because it turned out to be a very simple, bitter beer. It was nothing. It wasn't fantastic. It wasn't bad. It was just nice and a good drinking beer. That's what it was. <laughs> Little, Is it still available? Uh, I think, no, it was a limited run. I think it's gone now. I don't know. Uh, if any one of our American listeners <laughs> are, are, you know, are out there that, uh, that have seen or tried this at this bale that'd be nice to hear from them i haven't even got know. a can i wanted one of the cans i don't even know that <laughs> yeah because where, whereabouts in america was this you this said was, it was uh in pennsylvania pennsylvania oh come mm. on now get in touch at journey to center the food on instagram uh we'd like to see we'd like to see if anyone can track one of those down i'm sure one of our listeners can track one of those down so mark i'm interested uh, over the various different ages that you've tasted beers from do you have a particular uh, favorite century or, or, or decade of beer is there something um, you, you well like? you want to very much avoid the early 20th century in britain because they were thinning it down to get us to work harder in the first world war so it was getting thinner and thinner and thinner and really? less and less exciting um <laughs> i in all my historic cookery i have this this leading towards the, the 18th century, the Georgians, the tricorn hats, the wigs, the wonder. The, I think it's because it's becoming the modern world. It's also a little bit more accessible. We, we can understand it. It's, it's one that we could jump back into, into the London of Hogarth and his pictures and actually get on because we can get a cab across town. It might have a horse in front, but it's a cab. We understand theatres and restaurants. We understand what's going on. So I, I think it's an accessible world. And they're experimenting a lot more. And more than anything, they're writing a lot more down. So I've, I've worked more on those. And I would say they were more interesting flavours to play with. But probably not because they didn't do anything better in the past from that. It's because we know about it. Because they're writing so much down. I've got recipes for plum beer and cherry ale and things called braggart, which are spiced and honey. There's all, these, all this playing around. Uh, the one that always surprises people is the 17th century recipe for buttered beer that actually mm. exists. <laughs> we always reckon... I've heard you... <laughs> of this. Yeah, it sounds like a Harry Potter thing. It, well, it was used in Harry Potter, but it does exist. It is um, uh, quite a lot of butter dissolved in dark beer. Well, that sounds good. That sounds um, really good. If you can hold it down for a count of ten, you get a free pint. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I just, just to pick up on a, a, a point there, Mark, you, you said plum beer, mm. right? So... What makes that a beer? Right. Now, now, the thing that we have, and we, we mentioned this earlier on, was the fact that modern science is about 170 years old when it comes to beer making, and they discover the bacteria that ruins beer, the yeast, they, they understand it. So a modern brewer today knows that uh, our big enemy is, our, is oxygen. The moment that 
oxygen starts to get into your beer once it's made, it spoils, it goes sour. All drinks, wine, ciders, beer, they want to be vinegar. That's the end of their process. They start off in one place as a grape, and it, its end point is vinegar. And the skill of a winemaker is to stop it. And the skill of a brewer is to stop it. So <laughs> and that's what we can do now. You leave a pint out overnight, next morning it's sour. That's what happens. Yeah. It, it becomes yeah. it becomes a condiment. Beer vinegar. <laughs> no, we don't use it anymore. It's called alligator. It's gone completely from from our, uh, our modern condiment lists. We got we we use cider vinegar. We use wine vinegar. Mm. We don't use ale vinegar anymore. I don't know why. Um, well, that's a good one. That's trend, trend alert. Trend alert. Come on, yeah. Copyright me. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you can, if you can make it, Mark, I can make it. I'm sure we can. We, Jay and I can I've, do a bit of marketing. I really drink it. I listen to oh, definitely drink it. I've accidentally. Um, I when um, when COVID struck, I actually accidentally made eighty gallons of it because it all went wrong. Because <laughs> I could, we couldn't get back into the brewery for about four months, and so. I have enough ale vinegar now to last me to the end of the century. I'm doing, <laughs> I'm doing all right for that. But no, so the, the now the plums. If you go back before uh, metal kegs, carbon dioxide injections, on air will always get into you, your beer you've made. So you finish it off, you put it into a barrel. A barrel is porous, can't help it, tiny, tiny bit. The beer will slowly change and. It's the reason they made beer quite regularly, and it's the reason why you drank the beer. And again, it's not so long ago we were talking about pump ales. People would pour the last pint and go, "No, this is this is gone," and you'd yeah. ask for another one. It still happens. That's what happens as it goes down the van. It's more so with, with kegs. So the oxygen's your enemy, and the weather is your enemy. So certainly around the early summer months, June, July, as it's warming up, the beer that you made a month or so ago is starting to sour. You don't notice it an awful lot at first because you're drinking a pint every day. But if you could drink March beer in June, you'd find it so much sweeter, so much nicer. It gets to a point where people are noticing that's the time the fruit is ripening. Plums, cherries, something. So what you do is you stick you stick a load of a load of cherries, a load of plums, whatever, in more yeast, re-ferment it, and bring it back as fruit beer. And um, again, the scientists cross over and says, "Oh no, no." Once you put fruit in it, you'll accept a sourness that you wouldn't when it was called beer. <laughs> so it's a marketing yeah. thing. <laughs> That's amazing, yeah. isn't it? That's human nature, isn't it? Is that what we're yeah. going to do with all this? Smack some fruit in it, it'll be all right. That'll do. Yeah, great. So if your beer is seasonal, which our beer isn't anymore, it means it goes up and down. As the year goes on, I just mentioned March beer. March was considered a really good beer, mate. It's because it's been too cold through the winter to make beer. The little yeast friends that we were talking about earlier, bouncing around in there making yeast babies, well, they won't do that at under 16 Celsius. They go sleep. So winter, winter, not very good for beer making unless you've got a really uh, well-insulated, thick-walled brewery. Some people could do it, many couldn't. Mm. So you're getting vinegar at this point. Is it all your stops? Well, no, no, it's out? just stops. Yeah, yeah, so you, you've, got, you've got to make enough to get you through the winter. March, you get a real go again. Everyone likes the March beers. It's all quite sweet. And fun. But it's not as good as the next run. Because in the summer, fresh barley, it's all grown up, fresh hops, everything is new and ripe. So the beer you make in September is likely to be the best of the year. It takes about a month to be ready. So if I was going to have a beer festival, I'd do it in October. <laughs> and call it something like Oktoberfest, <laughs> wouldn't you? If you were I would. To... <laughs> Remarkable. <laughs> How interesting. So that is why 
God, I love the fact that these things are not they are sort of accidents. There's no accidents. Yeah, there's all, it's all it's all for a reason, and it's all meant that way. Mm. God, that's oh, it's really, that's really good. That's really good. I think this um, so this idea of the pubs we've talked about has come about mm. because of a place to people people go. What about the idea of when we started taking beer started becoming much more commercial in the sense of breweries? Did that change? the makeup of the of the liquid itself because they had to produce it on vast scales beyond anything we'd seen before and roughly and when was that when did that happen it's really a victoria it's industrialization like everything else it's starting in the 18th century which is when everything else starts the first steam engines the first factories but there are very much a lot of people doing something in a small space so there are factories in the true sense of the world but they're really all they've done is brought people together to do the thing they did on their own a lot what we'd almost call piecework so the early breweries are just just centralizing it they're, they're uh, we use a big word here they're nucleating the industry by bringing it all together in one place which means all your ingredients go to one place your water source can be sorry that, that's what starts off it's in the 19th century that the mechanical processes uh, start to happen and and things really do change but everything's connected. It's transport needs to be good. You need the canals and the railways. Otherwise, it doesn't matter if Jay and I can make 9,000 gallons in London. We can't sell it. You've got to be able to get it somewhere. Railways make that possible. Uh, all of the communication things are, are, allow you to make enough to make it cheaper than your competition. And it's certainly the big breweries of the late 18th, early 19th century that really through no fault of their own, start to destroy the household brewer, the, the stately home brewery. So all of the big houses, the palaces, the castles, even large farmsteads would all brew on their own. And once you get into the early 19th century, you start to see household accounts where they're shutting their brewery down. Not because there's anything wrong with it, it's because now they can just have 15 barrels shipped up from London at a third the price. They don't have to pay the workmen, they don't have to pay for the coals, they don't have to pay for the it just becomes easier. It's it's globalization as we know it. It's funny already how it's full circle now, though, isn't it? That that yeah. ease of transport means you can now start one in your house again and actually mm. start selling it all around the place. And the microbreweries just bursting into life everywhere now. Same same thing has helped the small man again. So what created the huge um, breweries that killed off the, the small independent has now gone full circle because we have a marketing tool called the internet, which means that the small person can sell globally so it, it yeah it just gone round and round and round the other thing is uh, certain technologies stop you being able to do something because you, you, get, you get stuck with un being able, unable to get any bigger and with brewing it's the not the barrels but the the big tubs they make the beer in they call them mash tons or mash vats so you've got a big stirring pot and you can only a cauldron's no good so you have to go to wood so yeah. it's a big wooden and there is a limit on that and they discover that in the early 19th century in what is known as the london beer flood <laughs> because oh come on now <laughs> that sounds good i've got to remember this off the top of my head it's it's quite early on it's 1830s or 1840s it's in soho and they're obviously trying to make bigger and bigger and bigger fats out of what are sticks held together with metal bands. <laughs> and they realise the end of that potential in the great London beer flood because a massive beer um, tub splits. 
and a huge wave of beer hits the next a wave one next of beer. Oh, it, it, was, it. it was it was hundreds of thousands of gallons, and it, it oh went. Oh my god! It, and it and it it it, uh, it's, it the weight of water hit the next tub, broke that, doubled the amount of beer that took the side wall out of the factory, and this bit, wall of beer went down towards Soho. <laughs> uh, and sadly, a, a, a number of workers were killed. Uh, in the factory. You know why, though? They were was diving in it, weren't uh, they? Were quick, and, uh, and in a, a piece of sad irony, a small number of people were drowned in a basement at a wake because that filled up with beer, too. <laughs> <laughs> Not that way to go, extraordinary Mike. image. I, I, it's like when you see those pictures of those people that go to, what's it called, on the Seven... Seven River, and it Yeah, when they go and watch that at two in the morning, this sort yeah. of huge wave uh, races down. This was one they didn't want to see. <laughs> But, no. uh, but it'd be good no, thing that, to redo, though, wouldn't it? To do it each uh, year. Do yeah, the, what, the, do the, the beer, beer flag. Wave. Well, if we could control it so that it didn't drown, that would be quite No, yeah, good. yeah, I'm not suggesting we just... Uh, um, no, no, but I don't then, again, that... I've, I've just Googled it, and I'd say it, it was on the corner of Tottenham Court Road in Oxford Street. Oh, yeah. In oh, sense, wow. I mean, the heart of London's yes, West oh, yeah. End. <laughs> it's like it was a, a wash with beer. beer. They, were, they were sticky till 1850 there. <laughs> still sticky down. You just go up to point and get a, get a cup on a stick and just, just drag it up from there. Well, um, I'm afraid I'm about uh, to call time on our, our conversation here. James, last orders. Are there any last questions you have for Mark on this front before we have to disappear, stagger home for the evening? No, not that's going to lead him on. No, I don't, I don't, we'll start another twenty-five minute discussion because I've got so many, Jay. To be honest, and I think I think we can revisit beer. I'd love to. There's so many more intricate details of this process that Mark's only alluded to in, the, in this sort of short time we've had with him. So uh, I'll, I'll keep my I'll keep my powder dry for another opportunity. But certainly, I'd like to have it over a pint of beer one day with Mark. That would be lovely. Yeah, maybe uh, maybe in um, maybe in in, in well, Central West End. We'll have a we'll have a London flood. Memorial Day. Yeah, well, yes, <laughs> yes, we should. There we go. That'd yeah. be great, actually. We should get all seventeenth of October. It is. is uh, it? We've missed oh, it. Oh, we've just missed it. Oh no. Yes, we have. I've had very little time. Yeah. But <laughs> right. That's an open could... invite to all our listeners. Next seventeenth of October, we're going to start the the Great London Beer <laughs> Flood Memorial Service. We'll get a big bucket and just pour <laughs> it all over. <laughs> Mark in the middle of it, and we'll just grab some as we go. Not uh, again. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, uh, that has been absolutely fascinating. As James said, we'd love to get you back on in the near mm. future to delve even deeper into the kind of chemistry and processes behind it because it feels like we're just basically scratching the surface of beer here. There's so much more to explore with it. But um, but for this this evening out on beer, thank you ever so much, sir. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been great fun. Now, if people want to find you mm-hmm. uh, or explore your world, what's your website? Uh, www w dot and then just meltonville.uk splendid and i i i we know we'll have you back on here because it's always a joy but uh but for this week thank you very much indeed i will not be looking at my beer away or quite the same way ever since <laughs> uh, and james thank you cheers that was fun wasn't it yeah wonderful what a what a what a journey through through time and place and space and beer in one <laughs> glass like a it's like a like a tankard of content I don't know I can't think anymore it was wonderful no, I'm, I'm lost in a world of googling about the great London beer flood. that's what I'm doing this evening good, good, good. we're going to get a national holiday declared for that uh, until next week thank you all for listening thank you Mark for being here uh, we'll speak to you soon <laughs>